Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, is Amazon's incursion into Long Island City a subprime deal for New Yorkers? A Vox reporter weighs in. There's no guarantee that these jobs will go to New Yorkers. There are a lot of promises being made. But there's no guarantee, as far as I'm aware, that Amazon is required to hire current New York City residents, Mm -hmm. or New York State residents for that matter. And then, more important than the fight over Amazon, the fight for the Amazon. We'll talk about the men and women defending the rainforest and sometimes paying with their lives. There's a very big agricultural lobby in Brazil, in in Congress, as you can imagine, not too dissimilar from the United States. And so it's really problematic to put that power back into the hands of people that are benefiting from the destruction. It's a bright, cold day in Long Island City, and the clocks are striking 13. Drones are delivering soylent to non-unionized warehouse workers, which has eliminated the need for the inefficient lunch hour. And our benevolent overlord is alighting on his taxpayer-funded helipad in Long Island City, high above the largest public housing development in the Western Hemisphere. Since Amazon announced its HQ2 plans in LIC, this dystopian future doesn't seem so far-fetched. Just how ungood is the Amazon deal for the average New Yorker? Gabby Del Valle, a reporter for Vox, is here to tell us. Welcome, Gabby. Thanks for having me. So first, catch us up on the latest. Is Amazon definitely coming to Long Island City, or is there still a possibility that they might pull out? As far as Amazon and the city and the state governments are concerned, Amazon is coming to the city. But there is some opposition, both in the state legislature and the city council, to the Amazon deal as it exists right now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're coming, Um, but I think the opposition at this point is kind of just trying to, if not stop the deal altogether, then at least mitigate it so that Amazon gets fewer tax breaks and incentives than they're currently getting. Right. So there are significant tax breaks and incentives between the state and the city, $3 billion in tax incentives. Is that right? Yeah. Mayor de Blasio did say that the city is not offering any special or additional tax breaks to Amazon. The city is only offering the tax breaks that it offers to big companies. But that doesn't mean that the city is not offering like any tax breaks to Amazon. It just means that it didn't create new incentives. It's just using incentives that already exist that are already offered to other companies. Right. And Cuomo did offer special state tax incentives yes. and also offered to change his name to Amazon, Amazon Cuomo, Cuomo. Which I haven't heard I, that hasn't happened yet. But does that go into effect when the groundbreaking happens or is there a date for that? Maybe once they like hit a certain job threshold, like maybe once they hit 15,000 or something, then that'll happen. That's good. We'll hold him to that. (laughs) But a lot of the details about these negotiations we're not even aware of, right? Because it all happened behind closed doors and NDAs were signed. Yeah, NDAs were signed not only by the cities that were chosen, which are New York and Crystal City slash uh, National Landing, Virginia. National Landing, Virginia, yes. Um, But the cities that were finalists also had to sign NDAs, the officials that were kind of privy to the deals. So we don't even know what a lot of places offered Amazon, not just New York. So if there weren't any special tax incentives created by the city of New York, why are people pissed? And as a progressive New Yorker, how am I supposed to feel about this? I think people are pissed because they either didn't realize that the city offered these kinds of tax breaks in general or didn't realize the extent to which these tax breaks are offered. So a lot of people are comparing Amazon to Google, for example, and they're saying, well, Google doesn't need special tax breaks to come here. And... Google also is getting tax incentives from the state. And 
Glossier got tax incentives from the state. I think the reason that people are upset is not only because the city and the state are both offering tax breaks to Amazon, which it goes without saying was founded and is partially owned by the wealthiest man in the entire world, Jeff Bezos, but because they don't think that the city and its residents are getting a good deal. So in exchange for a still undetermined number of jobs, because we don't know how many jobs will start next year or the following year or the year after, we just know that the final number, I believe, is 25,000. Right. That's what I've heard. But we don't know what, like, when those jobs are going to get here. They could get here in the next decade, for example. That's part of it. Another part of it is that people think that because Amazon is a hugely profitable company, it doesn't need these incentives. Amazon is not struggling to get by right now. Amazon is not like a small business that, like, if it doesn't meet a certain profit margin, it's going to close its doors. Amazon is making immense profits, even if certain parts of the business aren't as profitable as others. And because of all of that, because of Jeff Bezos's vast wealth, people are saying, like, well, why are my tax dollars subsidizing this? Right, right. Why are my tax dollars subsidizing the wealthiest man in the world whose fortune is to the tune of, like, $140 billion? Yeah, I think it varies every day. But right, of yeah, course. Depending 130 on the stock market. to $140 yeah. billion, dollars, which is tons what's, of money. What's $2 billion between friends? Yeah. Um, so another, another criticism is that Perhaps this whole competition to decide where HQ2 was going to land actually was an elaborate ruse in order to extract the most tax incentives out of cities that were vying for this for this option. But that actually he really wanted it in New York and and D.C. all along. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a really good point because businesses relocate all the time. Businesses open up new offices in new cities all the time. But by making it such a public spectacle, Amazon and Jeff Bezos and also all of the local politicians who played into this thing were basically competing against each other by not only offering Amazon these tax benefits in some cases or public-private partnerships and things like that, but also just like incredible amounts of data right. on their cities, right. on demographic information, um, city planning information, like all kinds of things that we don't even know. But it's true, like, Amazon asked cities to submit these very detailed dossiers mm -hmm. about um, residents of the city, about public funding available, about land zoning usage. And the amount of work that went into compiling this uh, was enormous. Yeah. And it's also a dream, a data dream for a company like Amazon. Yeah, and it's not just big cities like New York and D.C. and L.A. and all those other cities that made HQ2 proposals. It's also like Gary, Indiana, which I assume cost them a ton of manpower hours, a ton of money and resources, only to be completely overlooked because, let's be real, was Amazon ever going to go to Gary, Indiana? Probably not. Right. But I guess my feeling is, like, as a New Yorker, I'm like, we don't, do we need to incentivize, what, 25,000 jobs, six-figure jobs? Mm -hmm. Like, those jobs already exist in New York. They're not going away. Uh, we don't need to attract the best and the brightest talent because they're already coming to New York. Like, Gary, Indiana, sure, maybe people will be like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll consider moving with my computer science degree to Gary, Indiana, a place I'd never thought of moving before. But people are already highly educated, skilled workers are already coming to New York because they want to be in New York. So to me, it's a little bit like, did we really need this Amazon deal? And are we getting anything out of it? Yeah. And I think another really important point is that there's no guarantee that these jobs will go to New Yorkers. There are a lot of promises being made, but there is no guarantee, as far as I'm aware, that 
Amazon is required to hire current New York City residents mm -hmm. or New York State residents for that matter. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what might be in store for Long Island City by looking at Seattle. Can you tell me how Amazon has shaped the landscape of contemporary Seattle? Yeah. So in Seattle, the Amazon story is basically Amazon decided to build its headquarters not in the suburbs as a lot of other companies did, but in the city itself. Part of what happened in Seattle was that the rents in the city went up, not only because of Amazon. Amazon isn't the only culprit here. But rents went up as these highly compensated tech workers were flocking to Seattle for these really great jobs. And once rents went up in the city, rents also started to go up in the suburbs because people were moving to the suburbs for more affordable options. And in a lot of cases, the quick rise in rents displaced a lot of lower income people who were living in the area before Amazon got there. They work in food service. They work in the service industry. They do the jobs that let people who work for Amazon do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they're being displaced. They can't afford their rent. Seattle's having a homelessness crisis right now that doesn't really seem to have any end in sight. So let's talk a little bit about the homelessness issue and how Jeff Bezos has helped or hindered that problem. So there was a bill that was passed by the Seattle City Council that would have taxed employers mm -hmm. per head. And that money, I think it was something like $275 per employee for companies that made over a certain threshold would have gone to homelessness surveys mm -hmm. or homelessness alleviation projects. And Jeff Bezos uh, was so against this that he donated $25,000 to try and get the bill repealed and the city council backed down and did indeed repeal the bill. Yeah, the, I, Amazon wasn't the only company to oppose the bill. There was a lot of corporate opposition to the bill, both before it passed and after. Before it passed, there appeared to be really significant public support for it. But after the bill passed, a few different companies, including Amazon, kind of kickstarted this referendum campaign that was not only a referendum on that bill, but kind of like on the entire existing city government and its ideals, I guess, for lack of a better term. And the basis of it was that by enacting this bill, the city was not only hurting big businesses like Amazon, but also smaller businesses as well, and therefore hurting the entire economy of Seattle. And another part of it was that Jeff Bezos and a lot of really wealthy people, both in Seattle and other cities, believe in private solutions to these public problems, as opposed to public solutions to these problems through charity, philanthropy, that kind of thing, as opposed to through taxation. And so tell me a little bit about Jeff Bezos's personal philanthropic giving. Sure. So Jeff Bezos and his now ex-wife Mackenzie have uh, what they call the Day One Fund, which has a dual purpose. It's to help low-income children with access to schools, quality education, and to also help low-income families who are homeless to help provide them with access to, if not permanent housing, then temporary housing or shelters or other services. So basically what the Day One Fund does is allocate grant money to specific organizations. There does seem to be this idea that there are good ways to solve the homelessness crisis, to provide children with adequate education that should come from Bezos himself personally through his own money, but also like as dictated by him, as opposed to the city or another government entity 
taking some of that money through taxation and then allocating it to organizations or services as it sees fit. Right. And we see this among technocrat philanthropists where there's sort of a strain of giving where it's like, well, I probably know how to solve this issue better than local government, so I'm going to fund it myself and I shouldn't be taxed because the government doesn't know what to do with it, and instead I'm just going to give away $2 billion the way that I see fit. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's um, a strain of that in the business world, in the tech world, that the government either doesn't know what to do with the money or has so much overhead and is so bureaucratic that it's wasting a lot of tax money on bureaucracy that it could instead be using on actual philanthropy. And again, a lot of this is also about choice, about like a kind of libertarian streak that runs through the business and tech communities where it's like, if it's my money, I should decide what's done with it. Right. Right. Not some small minded city council. Right. So in Seattle, we have skyrocketing rents. We have a ballooning homeless population. Can we expect the same in Long Island City? I don't want to speculate yet because we don't know what the final deal will look like. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. But I can say that people in the real estate industry are excited about the potential for rising rents in Long Island City. I think we can see a more burdened public transit system. Whether this will contribute to homelessness or will be one of many factors that contributes to rising homelessness in the city, I'm not sure yet. And are there any pros to maybe having Amazon move into Long Island City, uh, which is also home to the largest public housing project in the United States and, in fact, the Western Hemisphere? I believe de Blasio said that there'd be amazing synergy. Synergy between the two. Right. Yeah. Uh, That sounds like some spin, but maybe there are pros that I'm not thinking about. It's definitely spin, but I think the way that the city, the state, and Amazon are looking at it is that In exchange for all of these benefits and for its presence in the city, Amazon will provide jobs fairs for Queensbridge housing residents. It will also provide jobs because not all of the 25,000 jobs that Amazon is bringing are these highly paid tech jobs. A lot of them are lower level jobs that are kind of like support staff or cleaning staff or things like that in the office. And from my understanding of the pros that Amazon and the city are proposing, or are saying will happen, it's that these jobs will go to New Yorkers who would otherwise not be able to find work. All right. I see. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Amazon. Thanks for having me. named his little online bookstore Cadabra, but after receiving feedback that it sounded too much like cadaver, he turned to the A section of the dictionary. He landed on Amazon, thinking it fitting that the world's largest bookstore be named after the world's largest river. But while Amazon Inc. grows spectacularly, the Amazon rainforest shrinks. And the activists who agitate against that deforestation, many of them indigenous, take their lives in their hands. According to the nonprofit Global Witness, 145 activists have been killed in Brazil since 2015 alone. 
Suzanne Pelletier, Executive Director of Rainforest Foundation, is here to talk about the life or death struggle for the Amazon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is something that, shockingly, not too many people know about, that not only um, are activists in Peru, Brazil, other parts of the Amazon waging a war for the rainforest, but often they're paying for it with their lives. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the current landscape. Yeah. Yeah, these are people, yeah, you don't read about them in the paper. They're not the presidents or members of Congress. They don't have that sort of power. But, yeah, about four people a week are being killed around the world for uphold, for trying to protect their rights. Four people a four week. Four people a week, yep, um, um, environmental and human rights defenders. HuffPo uh, mm -hmm. had an article recently uh, where it reported that statistic, and it said, four environmental activists are killed every week mm -hmm. so we can have snacks, meat, and coffee. What is that about? Yeah. <laughs> like, what snacks, meat, and coffee? Is this because agribusiness is behind these murders? Yeah. Well, agribusiness is the biggest source of deforestation around mm. the world right now, large-scale agribusiness. Um, and a lot of times this is happening in countries where there's a lot of corruption, where the communities where the activity is happening don't have official rights to territories that they may have lived on for thousands of years and protected. And all of a sudden there's bulldozers coming in and you know destroying the forests where they get their food, their medicine, their livelihoods. Um, and so a lot of times people if they don't have official rights to that land, they have to do whatever they can, and they put themselves at great risk up against very powerful forces. And a lot of times, most of the people that are killed are by illegal mafias, um, organized crime. So these are assassinations. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And the mafias and organized crime, do mm -hmm. they have ties to the government? Do they have ties to corporate interests? Both? It depends. I mean, sometimes both, sometimes, sometimes not. There's just there's incredible impunity in these in these areas, and everybody knows they're never going to go to jail. No one ever gets prosecuted for these crimes, unfortunately. Pair that with corruption in a lot of the the co countries where this is happening, especially in very rural areas, very far from um, capitals and places of where there's a lot of law enforcement this can sort of get swept under the rug. Or if it is brought to local officials, if there is any corruption, they can choose not to prosecute or not to investigate what's happened. So um, at one point, mm -hmm. a huge cause of deforestation was extractive industries. Right. Uh, but now agribusiness, cattle ranching, mm -hmm. uh, I believe is the main cause of deforestation of the Amazon. Is mm -hmm. that right? Right. And are there any plans to slow the spread <laughs> of ranching in the Amazon, or are governments complicit in this? Um, there, you know, there, Brazil did make progress. I mean, recently, obviously, there's um, with the new president, everything is up in the air. What's right. going to be Trump happening? The Trump of the tropics. The um, but before that, I mean, Brazil was an incredible, incredible success story. They did a lot of right things. They, they matched technology for tracking deforestation with really effective public policy that was actually enforced, which is a big issue. You can have, you know, rules on the books and regulations on the books, but unless they're enforced, nothing's going to change. But Brazil really made an incredible effort to prosecute people and fine people that were that were deforesting illegally. Mm -hmm. um, they also they attracted foreign investment for by the Norwegian government. They would pay Brazil if Brazil stopped deforesting. So there was a billion dollars that the Norwegian government had up for grabs for the 
um, Brazilian government if they proved that they were decreasing deforestation. And they decreased their rate by 70 percent wow. in the mid-2000s. And they also had fairly progressive programs to officially restore land rights to certain right. indigenous communities if they could demonstrate that they had been on that land uh, forever. Absolutely. And that was a huge part of, of what happened. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> um, um, because about half the Amazon is protected in one way or another through parks or indigenous territories. In Brazil, it's about 25% of the Amazon is under indigenous control. But communities may have lived there for thousands of years, but the government during that time, about 15 years ago, started titling those territories and actually giving rights to the indigenous people. Um, and once they did that, it shows that it works for de stopping deforestation. Yeah, yeah. If, if people care about the environment and global mm -hmm. warming, why should they care about indigenous land rights? Because deforestation is two to three times lower on indigenous lands. If you give the rights to people that have, have a vested interest in that territory, it's given them everything. It's how they get their food, their medicines, their livelihoods, they have a vested interest in protecting it. The activists who are killed mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. rate of four per week, yeah. are many of them indigenous? Yes. A disproportionate number of them are indigenous. Tell me. Tell me about one of them. Yeah. One, um, there's a man named, who was named Edwin Chota. He was from Peru, the Peruvian Amazon. Um, and he and his community of Soweto, they had been push, trying to push the government for 12 years to give them title to their territory. The government kept dragging their feet, and they were invaded by illegal loggers. And in 2014, four of the leaders of that community were killed um, for making waves, basically. They were killed by illegal logging mafias. The community was left leaderless. Um, and so for the four widows of those men that were killed, including Edwin Chota, became the official leaders of the community. And we've been supporting them over the past few years to try to help them um, access justice. They're a global example of what's happening around the world with communities that are remote, that don't have access to the justice system. And that's um, why these mafias have been operating with impunity for so long. Exactly. And are, are governments receptive? Are you finding that the government is is interested in moving ahead with prosecuting these individuals? Um, the case has been ongoing. Mm. I mean, it's four and a half years now. Um, we're making making progress, but it's very, very slow. I mean, through pressure, including international pressure, after a couple of years, the government did grant the community legal title to their territory. That is a success. That's a success. Yes. Unfortunately, 14 years right. and four people being killed, but they have their title now the new president of Brazil, mm -hmm. President Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. um, he recently shifted regulation of indigenous lands and put them under the oversight of the Ministry of Agriculture. Yeah. Why is it significant and what does it mean? Yeah. The biggest driver of deforestation in Brazil is agribusiness. And so to me, it's a bit of a conflict of interest to have the Ministry of Agriculture <laughs> um, making regulations. This sounds regulations. So <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge conflict of interest. There's a very big agricultural lobby in Brazil in, in Congress, as you can imagine, not too dissimilar from the United States. And so it's really problematic to put that power back into the hands of people that are benefiting from the destruction. Yeah. And, and you recently were in Peru. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about the work that you were doing there and anything that maybe gave you hope? 
Yeah. Um, the situation in uh, Peru has the fourth, is a country with the fourth largest amount of, of forest. The issues are very different. Agribusiness is not the big driver of deforestation. It's more small plots of land. So four hectares and under, like smaller plots. Uh, one of the big drivers is cutting down trees to plant coca for cocaine production. Peru is the biggest um, exporter of cocaine, a producer of cocaine in the world now. So a lot of the communities that we're working with are facing a lot of threats because of the, that production. And you can imagine the illegality, the threats that communities are facing from that whole supply chain and people involved in that, in that industry. So what we've done is um, we're working a lot with training communities to use technology. It's very easy and cheap with Google Earth um, to track deforestation. And so in almost near real time, you can see where deforestation is happening. Um, and so we've been training indigenous technicians to learn how to analyze that satellite data to pinpoint where that deforestation is happening on indigenous lands and then bring that information to local communities. And we've trained local communities to then have apps on their smartphones that they can go and actually investigate where the deforestation is happening, collect evidence, and then bring that evidence to their community to decide what to do and bring it to the government to push for law enforcement to take action. And how do you mitigate the danger that may present itself to indigenous people who see that somebody's planting yeah. cocaine on their on their land and they're going to go investigate. We also have trained them to use drones because sometimes if you do see that there's deforestation happening, if you're kind of worried about who's there and who's doing it, at least using a drone the first time, you can collect the evidence without having to confront anybody. Well, there's there. our tie-in to Amazon Inc. <laughs> drone <true>. usage. <laughs> Our future, um, and the future, our our future as as a as humanity is tied up in the future of these courageous indigenous activists yeah. working in the Amazon. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing those stories with us, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. A footnote to today's show: we talked a little about the philanthropy of Jeff Bezos. Perhaps he should consider giving some of his fortune to the Amazon, to which he has apparently yet to give a penny. Amazon gives to the Amazon. Kind of has a nice ring to it. And that is the show for today. Please join us on Friday for my chat with the 24th individual to be exonerated after a case review by the Brooklyn DA's Conviction Review Unit. One Win 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 